Well, thank you, Josh, Brielle, and the team, just for uh, hopping in again. Of the, if you, it might feel like lots of folks aren't here. It's because it's true. Lots of folks aren't here. Several of them are actually up in the mountains right now with a bunch of kids. And, uh, and so we're thrilled about that. Um, we're grateful that, uh, you know, there's so many... Um, opportunities that we have as a church to have an impact on the lives of, of one another and, and of others and of our youth especially uh, and, and those who don't yet know Christ. So let's take a moment right now and let's just pray right now for the Elevate Retreat. There's 20 plus kids up there with a bunch of leaders and certainly we want safety but we want God to bring about spiritual fruit as well. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we lift up um, Elevate. We lift up Andrew and, and the Elevate team as well as they're caring for uh, young people. Uh, from our community and from our church family and from other places as well. We would just ask that by your grace in, in these days that they've spent together, that your word has gone forward, that the gospel is taking root and bearing fruit. We pray, Lord, that for those that don't know you, that they would be born again, that they would turn to you and trust you uh, as young people and, and that they would walk with you in these, in these critical days of their own lives. Uh, we also would ask that those that do know you, Lord, that they would be strengthened in you, that they would have increasing joy in you and increasing love for you because of your love for them in Christ. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you'd keep everyone safe. We pray that they would be refreshed together in you today and that they'd arrive home safely. Uh, we look to you for uh, just great blessings to come from that time they've spent together in your creation. So we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I, uh, if I say this word to you, I want you you know, what do you think of it? And the word is simply this, love. And, and for, for some of us, we might go, I'm cynical. Yeah, love, whatever. I've been there. I've been burned. I'm tired of it. You know, you find your heart kind of going more with that, uh, you know, well-known song from the 80s, What's Love Got to Do With It? You know, probably one of the most inappropriate songs to sing at a wedding. I think I'd still kind of, I have, the, I have certain like wedding dreams that I want to do that I will never do. One would be have that song sung just because it's zany, silly, and weird. Uh, the other, of course, is the classic, uh, you know, the princess bride moment where I turn around, the couple's there, and I go, love is what brings us together today. I, I've always wanted to do that. I, I haven't. If you're thinking of getting married, don't worry. I won't. I won't. I might do it at your rehearsal dinner. I might do that. I might. But anyway. But that topic is, is, is such a hard one for us for a lot of reasons. Part of it, I think, is the expectation that's set in terms of what love is supposed to do. And it's, it's a weird thing that our culture's done with love because it's raised the expectation super high and flattened what love is all at the same time. It's raised it in that every movie you see, every song you hear, every, it, it is like this ecstatic, just sort of like, just high that you're on, this euphoria of love. And then it's squished in the sense that basically, if I use that term in our culture today, we automatically think of romantic love. And by the way, romantic love is a beautiful thing. Romantic love is a gift from God. And, and, and that's, that's, you know, again, Song of Solomon is in the Bible for a reason. And, uh, and if you're not familiar with the Bible at all, it's a, it's a place where uh, love between a husband and wife and even their, their, their love relationship together and all the romance involved in that and their physical relationship and their emotional relationship, it's all highlighted. 
which is why the, you know, in, in, uh, in, in ancient Israel, uh, you, could, you had to be, I think, 33 or 34 to read Song of Solomon, okay? You weren't allowed to read that thing unless you were older. But, um, but love's, love's inflated in some ways and squished down in other ways. And, and, and there was a, if you go on, on, uh, on Google, and I did this, you know, and type in confusion about love, oh, you get all kinds of advice, you get all kinds of definitions. You get all kinds of ways of, all, you know, I'm going to straighten you out. I'm going to help you out. And then oftentimes you read it and you're like, really? I don't know. For example, here's one. And this is a post that said, um, in our modern day confusion with love, here's some quotes from various writers that will help you. And so here you go. Here's a quote. It's difficult to know at what moment love begins. It's less difficult to know that it has begun. That's heavy. That's, 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 that's Longfellow right there. Wadsworth Longfellow. All right, that's, whoa. Just kind of stop. Dude. Here's another one. Another writer said this. Follow love and it will flee. Flee love and it will follow thee. Yeah, okay. I don't know. And then, you know, a modern actress, she, you know, Kirsten Dunst, she put it this way. You can never control who you fall in love with even when you're in the most sad, confused time of your life. You don't fall in love with people because they're fun. It just happens. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. And frankly, I don't know why she's giving advice to people about love either, but that's another story altogether. The fact is we, we don't really know today what love is. And then you would think, but in the church, you know, God's people, we now, we know what love is. And the reality is, we actually do. We actually do. Because God has shown us what love is. He's shown us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, no greater love has anyone than this than that they lay down their lives for their friends. He was talking to his followers. He was talking to his disciples. He was calling them friends. And he was telling them, I'm about to lay down my life for you. And yet, even though we know what it is, you know what happens to us? We forget the vital importance of love. Matter of fact, we forget that love is so vitally important that nothing compares to it at all. So we get the definition, we understand it, and then we kind of put it in a box on a shelf and we get caught up in a bunch of other things that are supposedly more spiritual, more important. Uh, maybe, maybe it's our, our self-discipline in some area of our life. Maybe, maybe it's some sort of religious practice. Maybe it's a moral standard that we want to keep. In the case of the church in Corinth, it was their spiritual gifts, their spiritual gifts had become the apex of what it meant to be truly spiritual. They were so gifted. And what happened was they missed the entire point of the gifts themselves because they lost sight of the main thing. That's what Paul's about to describe for us today as we continue in the book of 1 Corinthians and, uh, and, and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll actually begin slightly before that because the last passage in chapter 12 sets up chapter 13. Um, this verse is quoted all the time. This, 
verse is probably on more cross-stitched pillow covers than any other verse in the Bible. And it's very easy for us to read it and just sort of go, yeah, I know what that is. Maybe you've heard it before and you're going, oh, we're talking about this? Okay. But I want to encourage you, just because you've heard this before, just because we're familiar with this verse, does not mean we grasp it, doesn't mean we understand it, certainly doesn't mean we're applying it in our lives, especially in light of the critical way, the highly, highly, highly vital way Paul brings it out for us here. So in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read 1 Corinthians the last verse of chapter 12 through verse 13, or chapter 13. Beginning with, with verse 31b. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child and think like a child and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord, we we come to you desperately in need that you would teach us this morning. We ask that your word in the hands of your spirit would transform our lives from the inside out. Lord, we ask that you would protect us from ever taking for granted the superlative, absolutely vital, above all good and blessing and power and all that comes from love, Lord, that that superlative calling and blessing from you.
So grace us to see. Transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Well, even as I was just praying, I got tongue-tied. You know why? Language doesn't work with this. And that's how Paul sets out in this very passage. In verse 31, when he says, I will show you still a more excellent way. Uh, That word for excellent has the idea of a degree of something that exceeds extraordinarily above and beyond anything else that can be measured. I mean, I don't know, you know, you, you think about, you know, when we travel, uh, sometimes you might take an airplane, although these days, if you're hard, you're probably thinking twice about it, but, but you know, we, we use airplanes. But if you've ever, you know, seen a rocket launch before, uh, we were watching a documentary on some, some probes that were sent to Mars not long ago, and, uh, and just to see the footage, you know, that comes about, these rockets, they just like... They just blast off. They're, they're, you know, they go way past where a helicopter would run around. They go way past where airplanes fly back and forth. You, know, you think 35,000 feet, 45,000 feet, that's a big deal. Nothing. This thing goes right out of the, of the ability for planet Earth's gravity to even hold on to it anymore. It just kind of keeps going. All the way into interplanetary travel. That is this word. Exceedingly, abundantly, beyond Anything else you can possibly think of as being vital or important, this is a more excellent way. And so as we spend time in this passage, we're going to be looking at how love is the beyond anything excellent way. Love is the beyond anything excellent way. And we're going to look at why 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 is that the case. And the first reason is this. It's that way because... We find in verses 1 to 3, love is essential. And by essential, it literally means here, we cannot do without it. And when we talk about love, realize, again, we're not talking about this thing that, you know, the world parades around as being love. Certainly, again, romantic love, that's a blessing from God, as we said, that's an element of it. In Greek, there were several different terms for love. So there's eros, which describes romantic love. Uh, Phileo has the idea of, of, of brotherly love between uh, friends. Um, this, the, love, the love here, the love described here is the word agape. And, and, and that word has the idea of, of self-sacrificial love. And we see that in the way Jesus uses the term most of all. And we'll get more into that a little later. But agape is a love that gives away for the purpose of caring for others. And, um, you know, Paul, as he, as he addresses it with the, with the Corinthian church here, um, you'll notice in each section of verses one through three, he's going to bring up a gift. And if you haven't been with us, uh, we, we went over the spiritual gifts for several weeks. I'd encourage you to go ahead and uh, go to the website and, and look at those uh, messages. Um, but he's going to take... Different gifts he's already described now, and he's going to use them in comparison to love. Because that's what they thought was the biggest and best of spirituality. And so he begins in verse 1 by saying, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, what if I had that kind of gift? And as we said before, the gift of tongues was speaking in known languages, though you'd never learned them before. So here what he's saying is, what if I spoke with every known language on the planet at the drop of a hat without having, ever having learned it. 
Yeah, what kind of? That'd be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? I mean, that'd be something. And what if it's beyond that? And he's using hyperbole here, and he goes, what if, what if I actually could speak the language of the angels? And, and there might be a reference to that in 2 Corinthians 12 and Revelation 14. You know, it might be examples of that, how there's this uh, way in which angels would, would communicate. But, so what if, I, what if I was able to speak with all the known languages on earth, just like that, or I could speak with the language of the angels themselves, but I don't have love? I mean, he, he is taking the thing they valued the most and saying, what if I, was, I thought I was more gifted than any of you in that way, but didn't have love? And look what he says. I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And, uh, and when we think of that, we think, you know, gong. And, and by the way, uh, with all deference to those who play drums in the room, um, especially our dear drummer Daniel, don't worry, man, he's not talking about those cymbals. So you can clang those all you want, all right? That's a good sound. That's not what he's talking about. No, instead, these, these terms actually describe something else. So the word gong was really a type of metal made of brass or bronze, and it, it didn't have much to do with music at all. Uh, if, if anything, it was really more of an acoustic vase, and, and what they, they would do in ancient theaters is they would take these metal acoustic vases and they'd place them at different points in the theater, for the purpose of reverberating the voices of the actors so that they could be better heard. That was the idea. And so, so here what he's really saying is speaking in tongues might sound great, but it's just an echo. It's just a reverberation. It's just an empty sound coming out of a hollow, lifeless vase. That's all it is if there's no love. And the clanging cymbal, uh, that would really be more along, uh, along the lines of what they would be using in, in pagan uh, worship services. Um, they would have a metal basin, and that basin, they would hit it, or they would clang them together, and that would make a very shrill sound. And so the idea would be speaking, speaking in tongues using this gift from God, this gift. This is a, he's not saying the gifts are bad, by the way. He's already spent the entire previous chapter saying, these gifts are wonderful. They're from the Lord. They're to be desired, especially the greater gifts, he's saying. And yet, if they become the focus, the main thing, if you have this, these false criteria for true spirituality overtaking your thinking, then sadly you're misusing them and, and, and they're meaningless. And he goes to say, if I don't have love, I'm just making a bunch of noise. That's what, that's what, that's what the use of that gift becomes. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about prophecy in, in, in verse 2. And as we said, prophecy uh, is, is the speaking forth direct revelation from God. And, and as, as the prophets received God's word in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, they were declaring God's word. And he's, again, an amazing gift for the building up of the church. And yet, um, He's saying, if I have prophecy, I know all mysteries and all knowledge. Again, if there's a mystery, God's made it known to me. If there's something to be known about God, I know it. I mean, again, it's hyperbole. You know, you're not going to have that. God's infinite. You're finite. It's not gonna, but he's saying, what if that were possible? What if I had so much of that gift that I just had everything laid open before me of the, of the uh, infinite God? And I could see it and reveal it to all of you. But I don't have love. 
What's the point? And then he goes and refers to the gift of faith. Uh, and we, as we mentioned before, the gift of faith is, is when a, a, husband, or a man or a woman uh, receives from God this ability from the Spirit of God to trust him, like no matter what. I mean, whatever's happening, whatever's going on, they're the person that says to you in the midst of that dire situation, hey, God's got it. And usually, again, our response to that is, oh yeah, you're right, he does. <laughs> you're right. He's got it. Um, if I don't have love, he says, look, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And by the way, what kind of faith is described? The kind that can move mountains. Jesus describes that in Matthew 21. He's saying, you know, you can just say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. That's, that's, tr- that's how much trust. You're trusting God to that extent. And yet, the point he makes is, is you might have all of those gifts from prophecy to faith Par excellence, beyond the ability to even really understand. It's so great. And yet, without love, you are nothing. And I, years ago, someone said this, and it's kind of stuck with me. What is nothing? Nothing is a zero with the edges rubbed off. Nothing. That's what you are. And so we find that, again, getting caught up in these wonderful gifts from God without love makes it all meaningless. And then, and then you can kind of see the passage crescendoing a bit, right? Now, now it's growing. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, if you want to really show that you're truly spiritual, look at verse 3. What if I give all my possessions to feed the poor? I'm not just showing up to the refuge, you know, food pantry down a monument and caring for people. I'm not just doing a periodic thing where I'm going to the homeless camps and helping folks out or making sandwiches, doing what I can do. No, I basically took the house, put it on the market, I sold it. My savings account, yeah, got rid of that. Oh, vehicles, yeah, sold those, sold them all. I'm taking all of that and I'm now giving it to the poor so that they can have what they need. You don't have love? He's saying, so what? Who cares? It doesn't profit you at all. And then you can see the crescendo building even more. Well, what about if I surrendered my body to be burned? You know, I'm, I'm in a part of the world where the church is persecuted, where if I declare Jesus, I'm not simply going to be thrown in jail. No, they're taking my life. And I'm doing that. Come on, that's, that's, that's got to be something. That's impressive. That's true spirituality. And what does Paul say in verse 3? It profits you nothing if it is not saturated with and empowered by love. So how important is love? It's essential. It is so essential. And, and, and we kind of stop for a moment and go, well, why? You know, what, what makes love, this self-sacrificial love, so essential Exactly. And, and first of all, let's realize, Paul is describing, again, the relationship of 
what they're seeing as true spirituality, and again, getting caught up in God's blessings, getting caught up in God's grace toward them as a church and giving them these wonderful gifts, spiritual gifts. He's talking about this in relation to that. And what's happened is they've become distorted in terms of priority of what's really important. Love isn't being seen as primary. It's being seen as a part of the equation or that's a good thing or, yeah, we should include that. And Paul's like, no, it's the main thing. As a church, what's a healthy, spirit-filled church? What's the main thing? Love. For us as individuals, as we walk through our lives and, and, and as we desire to follow Jesus in that, what's the main thing? Love. You know, when that, when that young man came to Jesus, right? And what did he say? He said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Remember that? He was asking Jesus, because, you know, I'm, I really want to, you know, do the right thing. And what was Jesus' response? Love God. Love your neighbors yourself. That's the whole law. That's all of it. Uh, we, we find the same thing from, from Deuteronomy, Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I wonder if this is why actually the world has a flattened view of love. Brothers and sisters, we don't live on a neutral playing ground here. The world is out to deceive. The enemy is out to distract. I wonder if love is so flattened and then so also kind of puffed up and out of proportion because it is in fact the main thing. So what do we find in the scriptures in terms of what makes this so essential? First, we would see love and the work of the Holy Spirit are connected to one another. Love and the work of the Holy Spirit are intimately connected with one another. We find this in, in, in Romans chapter 5. And it's, a, it's an important passage because it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You're going, whoa, whoa, what? that's amazing. God's love has been actually poured into our hearts. How? The Spirit of God has come to dwell inside each person who's, who's come to Jesus, who's received Christ by faith. Now, this phrase, you should know, is at the end of one of those long Pauline freight trains, okay? <laughs> so you got to love that about it. By the time you're reading, you know, Book of Romans or something that Paul wrote, it's, it's actually challenging and fun. You know, because you're like, okay, this is connected to this, connected to this, connected to this. And so he's, he's, uh, he started in chapter 5 by saying we're all justified by faith. Meaning we're declared righteous. Not because of our works, not because of religious deeds, not because of a moral standard that we've upheld, not because we've gone to church, uh, you know, not because we've kind of gone to Bible study or we've had our quiet time. No, we are justified declared righteous by God because of the already finished work of Jesus. And so because of that, we now, right now, have peace with God. 
You are, if you are in Jesus, you are no longer at war with God. He is no longer at war with you. His wrath was exhausted on Jesus on the cross. And so then Paul goes on from there to describe how we stand in this grace. He describes it kind of like a pool. If you like to swim and you just dive into that pool, you know how the water kind of surrounds you, kind of supports you? You know, you have to exert yourself. If you're doing exercises in the water, some have classes like that, or that's, you know, you're not going to be as apt to injure yourself. You're in this pool of grace is the picture. And we have access to God. And, that, and then Paul goes on to say, so then, you know, when we suffer, it puts it in context of God's plan, God's purpose. We know that if we suffer, we get endurance from that. And if we have endurance, that gives us character. And if we have character, that also produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame. Why? Because of this verse. Because the love of God has been poured out with us. Into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So love and the work of the Spirit of God, they go hand in hand. What was the church at Corinth claiming? Oh, we've got the Spirit. We've got the Spirit. Why? Look at our gifts. And Paul's saying, you've got the Spirit? Where's the love? No love, no spirit. And so when we are those who have love in and through us flowing by the grace of God, it shows that we recognize something. We love because he first loved us. There's the vertical starts it all out. He loves us in Christ. We've received that by faith. And now because of that, we live differently in the world, in our daily lives. And that brings us to the, the second reason we would see that love is so essential. It's because this is the authenticating mark of true followers of Jesus. And who told us that? Well, Jesus did. What did he say? A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. And again, we've mentioned this before, but this is the most startling portion of the verse. This is what makes it a new love, I've commanded you. Notice that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. That's how they're going to know. And I've mentioned this before. I, that, that surprises me as well. Because I would think, Jesus would say, by this all people will know you're my disciples if you love them. It's not what he says. We need to love them too. We're told that in other places in scripture. Don't get me wrong. That's right. Good. We can hate all them out there and we can just love us. That's not the point. No, we're called to love those who don't know Jesus, but our love for one another, that is the sign that most clearly demonstrates we're his followers. And, and then when you think about, okay, well, he says that phrase, just as I have loved you, and that kind of like, whoa, what does that mean? Well, how has the Lord loved us? How has he? Well, Romans 5 again would tell us this. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? That means God doesn't wait for you to clean up your act to come to him. 
God doesn't go, hey, you know what? You do a little better. You know, meet, meet me halfway. No, that's not the Lord. The Lord sees us in our mess. The Lord comes down. The Lord grabs hold of us. The Lord pays the price for our sin. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus. You've never come to him. And maybe you're thinking, well, I can't do that yet because first I've got to straighten up this part of my life. First I've got to get this down. Then maybe I'll be ready. God, God isn't waiting for you to be ready. You're never going to be ready. All of us are, we're all a mess. If you find that you are a mess, you are in the right room this morning because that's us. And, and, and what we see is God calling out and saying, come to me. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? That's the idea of being burdened. Maybe you're burdened by your sin. Maybe you're burdened just by the, the, the catastrophes that you've been undergoing in life. I don't know what it would be. He knows. But the call to you is trust him. Turn to him today. And what happens? He will give you his righteousness in place of your unrighteousness. He will give you his perfect. He doesn't take your slate and clean it up. No, he breaks your slate over his knee and he gives you his slate. And you receive it by faith. So how does the Lord love us? Well, he shows love to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean with our one anothering? Well, that means we're called to love each other even as we wrestle with sin. Well, wait a minute. What are you talking about? I mean, I don't want to do that. Yeah, that's what we're called to. This, this love is, is beyond anything excellent because of that very thing. It emulates God's love for us. We're also told in Ephesians chapter 5, this is another way the Lord loves us. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So you're, we're to walk in love in that way, meaning we're giving up ourselves. Giving up ourselves in what way? Well, probably giving up our own preferences, giving up our own demands in relationships with one another. And, and, and certainly that looks supernaturally distant, different, does it not? I mean, how often is it that when we find there to be a lack of love in any given relationship, most often it's because one or both sides are saying, hey, you are not treating me in the way that I'm supposed to be treated. Christ gave himself up. And so notice, we are to walk in love in the same way with one another. So love is the... Beyond anything excellent way, not only because love is essential, but also because love is fruitful. We see that in verses four through seven. And here's where we get into that. Wait a minute, what are you talking about giving myself up? Well, look at what it says. Love is patient. And at that point, typically, I have people look at me going, oh, forget it, I'm out of here. We're done. Because if we're all honest, what do we got to say? We wrestle with this. I mean, if you don't wrestle with this, it either means you like live in a room by yourself and never interact with other human beings ever. You know, possibly. 
This idea of patience means love is forbearing. It, it, it really means um, something, the idea is something long and, 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 and stretched out. You might say this person has a long fuse. Love is long fused. Uh, the idea of forbearing automatically means what? You're being offended. As a matter of fact, do you need patience if you're not offended? No, implicit in the word is the fact that there's going to be people who smack up against you and you're going to go, ah. And I know for some of us, it's like, look, I know, I, I, I know I'm not patient. I, I know I'm irritable. Um, but if you work with the people I work with, you would be too. <laughs> or if you live with the people I live with, you would be too. If you had to deal with this person, you would be... So we, we, I think we have a way in our own minds of kind of excusing ourselves in this whole thing. And it's easy to do because, look, for all of us, we're such reasonable people, aren't we? Like, of course there's a reason. The, the passage is not saying you have no reason to be impatient. Again, if there's no reason to be impatient, you're not exercising patience. No, the whole point is that there's going to be times of, of needing to forbear. Of, uh, it's going to be necessary because we live in a fallen world amongst fallen people. And I'm fallen. The people in my family are fallen. My friends are fallen. Those I work with are fallen. And so because of that, there's just messy, ugly stuff that happens. You can see why many centuries back that whole monastic movement was so popular, right? <laughs> I'm just going to get away and be with God until Jesus comes back. That's what they did. They just kind of went off and made a monastery, you know. And you would just remove yourself from life and go up in the hills and trim fruit trees and talk to goats and pray and work the land. And they, they even had some places where you had to take a vow of silence. You know what that is? That's just a shortcut for don't bug me by talking to me. That's what that is. But the problem was they weren't dealing with sin they weren't growing. And not only that, they weren't sharing the gospel with those who needed it. They were just kind of up in that holy little enclave. That's easy for us. We have to make deliberate choices and say, no, Lord, I'm going to forbear. I must. I have to. Because you have been overwhelmingly patient with me. I mean, it's not like we come to Jesus, we trust him, and then Look, look, Lord, look how my life is together. Watch this. Look at that. Look at that. Look. No. It's repeated failure. We don't just repent one time, right? We, we live lives of repentance. We're constantly turning away from sin, turning toward God. And it's a battle. It's hard. And, and I think it's hard for a reason. I think it shows that we need his grace today. God is merciful and compassionate, the psalmist writes. Patient and then very merciful. Isn't that a great description of God? God describes himself that way when he reveals himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And that brings us to the next description of love. It's not just patient, it's also kind. By the way, these are all present active verbs. You know what that means? It's on 
going. It's not just, look, I had a moment of patience this week. Woohoo. Well, by the way, woohoo. We will woohoo that. Praise God. But the, but the goal is it's ongoing. It's a growing pattern of life. And it's being kind to and being merciful to all. And again, this finds its basis in God himself. God teaches us his kindness in the way he deals with us. Um, we see it in, in saving grace. We see it in common grace, too. Um, you know, Janet and I were marveling at that, you know, over the past couple weeks. All that rain. So which of you prayed for rain? And can you just calm down on that, maybe? You know, some of you are super righteous, obviously, right? <laughs> a lot of rain. But isn't it loving? You know, here it is. You know, we, we live in a time, in a culture, in a place that is essentially bent on forgetting God. Doing everything possible to deny God in so many areas of life. And yet, look at God's kindness. He brought rain. He didn't have to do that. But he did. I mean, you, th- you think about it. How much water was moved in these past series of storms? I didn't look it up, sorry, but I'll tell you right now, it's a lot. How did it become fresh water? Well, because God's designed it in such an amazing way that it actually evaporates and is purified and goes into this vapor form and then comes over an area and then becomes liquid and dumps down. I mean, crazy. Those of you who are engineers, I know several of you are here. Yeah, work on that one. Like, how do you do the same amount of water in the same amount of time? But God just designed it that way. And he lavishes his kindness. And so we want to follow him in that and emulate that And that's what love looks like. So love is provoked and patient. Love is is spurned in many ways and yet is kind in the face of that. And so when we look, when we see those things, I think we need to realize we we have a long way to go as, as God's people reflecting this. And and with what we've seen today about love and what it really is from God's perspective, you know, right now you you might actually feel like a big failure. And maybe that's it. Maybe if you're being honest, you're like, I have not been patient. I have not demonstrated kindness. Well, remember this. This picture of love given here in 1 Corinthians 13 is a portrait of Jesus, your Savior. And so you might not have been patient, but you know what? He is. He is kind. He is never proud or envious. He's not provoked to anger. He came to rescue you from sin and from death and from hell out of his mighty grace. So as we together continue to turn away from our lack of love, and we do so daily, We do so looking to him, grateful that he is our hope. He's not just our example. No, he's our substitute. He took God's righteous judgment upon himself. In other words, he paid for our lack of patience. And he gave us his righteousness. In other words, when God looks upon anyone in Jesus, he doesn't see your lack of patience, he sees Jesus' perfect patience. He's our substitute. And he's the righteous one. And he gives us his righteousness. And again, this is not a status to be earned, but a gift from him to be received.
And again, if today you've not yet received that gift of righteousness, call to Jesus for saving. Trust him. And you can receive that same gift today. Let's pray. Lord, we look to you and ask that you would help us to grow. Lord, we thank you that you're not just our example, you are our substitute, and that you give your righteousness as a gift. We pray, Lord, that we would grow to reflect your love more. And that love would not be a confusing term or a trivialized term or a flattened term or a some kind of distorted thing, but that we'd see it the way you do and that we would live it out because in Jesus we see so clearly your love first for us. So we pray we'd reflect you in this and that many others would turn to you as well and that all would know that we're your followers because we love one another. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.